The Bible is not simply one book, but 66 smaller books from all different times, places, cultures, and languages, all with one message. But where did they all come from? Who wrote them? And how did we end up with those 66 books? Over the last two episodes, we've been thinking about those questions. We've thought about the Old Testament, who wrote it and how it was collected together. Then last time, we thought about who wrote the New Testament and when. In this episode, we're thinking about how the books in the New Testament were collected together. How did we get those particular books? Who decided? And what about other books that weren't included? Hi, my name's Carl Denick. I'm a pastor, theologian, writer, and Bible college lecturer. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The New Testament itself doesn't really tell us how the New Testament was compiled. Most of what we know is from later history. But there are some hints that we can see in the New Testament of the beginning of the process of gathering together the early works of the church and the recognition by the church that those documents were authoritative. For example, in 1 Timothy 5 verse 18, Paul writes, For scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. What's interesting about that is that the first quotation about the ox comes from Deuteronomy 25, while the second quotation comes from Jesus. But Paul introduces both those quotations with the words, Scripture says, or literally, the writings. In order for that to be true of Jesus' words, one of the Gospels that includes those words, either Matthew or Luke, or one of their sources, had to be circulating in written form when Paul wrote 1 Timothy. But not only was such a document circulating, Paul considered what that document said to be on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. We saw in the last episode too that Peter refers to Paul's letters in 2 Peter 3.16. He writes, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. The implication is that Paul's letters had been circulating in the early church. But Peter also describes Paul's letters as scriptures like the Old Testament scriptures. He says that people distort Paul's letters just like they do the other scriptures. But there's also evidence from outside the New Testament that many of the books we have were already circulating among the early church and were considered to be reliable and authoritative. We can see that in the way that early church leaders from the period after the New Testament quote from some of those New Testament books in their own letters. To give a few examples, Clement of Rome, one of the early church leaders, refers to the words of Jesus as scripture. He writes, And another scripture also says, I came not to call righteous, but sinners. And Clement also treats Jesus' words from the gospel in the same way as other Old Testament scriptures. So too Polycarp, writing in about 120 AD, wrote to the Philippian church saying, As it is said in these scriptures, Be ye angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. What's interesting is that the first quotation is from Psalm 4, and the second is from Ephesians 4. In other words, 
Polycarp regards Ephesians to be scripture just like Psalms. So too, an early church order document known as the Dache, dating from the early centuries, quotes the Lord's Prayer as it's found in Matthew's Gospel, and that instructs that it should be prayed as the Lord commanded in his Gospel. And there are many other quotations too that show the same reality. What these quotations tell us, of course, is not the exact list of books that were considered to be part of the New Testament, but it tells us that many of the books we have in the New Testament were considered from very early on to be as authoritative as the Old Testament scriptures. But one of the most helpful things for our understanding of the New Testament is the production of what are called codices, or really books. That is, the production of books with pages rather than scrolls. What was included in a codex tells us something about what was considered by early Christians to be authoritative. One of the earliest codices we have is called P45 or Papyrus 45. It's from the early 3rd century, and it contained all four Gospels and Acts. We have another possibly earlier codex, P75, which when it was discovered had deteriorated so that only parts of Luke and John were left but it probably originally contained Matthew and Mark as well. From a little earlier than P45, in the late 2nd century, we have P46, which we encountered in the last episode. It was a codex containing most of the letters of Paul and Hebrews. And from the same collection, we have P47, which is a codex containing the book of Revelation, dating from the latter part of the 3rd century. It seems that these three codices were part of the Bible of a Greek-speaking country church in Egypt from around that time. We also have Codex Sinaiticus, which contains most of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament. It dates from the 4th century. And there are other codices too that shed light on the contents of the New Testament. But how did they work out which books should be included and who decided it and when? How did those particular books come to be the books that people trusted? Sometimes it's suggested that it was at the Council of Nicaea in 325 that the canon was decreed. But that's not true. The evidence from both the New Testament itself and the early church fathers shows that the process of working out which books belonged and didn't began really right from the beginning of the church. As Bart Ehrman, a scholar famous for his skepticism about the New Testament notes, the canon of the New Testament was ratified by widespread consensus rather than by official proclamation. We have some evidence of how that process began in Colossians 4 verse 13. Paul says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. In other words, Paul tells the Colossians and the Laodiceans to swap letters it's most likely that they would have copied the letter before they sent it on. There's also some evidence that other letters in the New Testament were intended for more than one church. It seems likely that Ephesians was addressed to more than one church because some of the early manuscripts lacked the place name Ephesus at the beginning of the letter. It's believed that the letter was a kind of a circular letter. So too, Revelation was written to at least seven different churches. We also know that Paul's letters, for instance, didn't just go by post, but were sent by his trusted ministry aides. So when the letter arrived at a church, 
People knew where it had come from. They knew its reliability. So over time, those letters, as well as the Gospels and Acts, were collected together by many churches in many places. In other words, they were distributed and collected together, not by one person in one place, but by many Christians in many different places. And the relative agreement in what books were considered to be scripture, despite the large geographical, social and political differences between early Christians, is quite telling. In other words, the process was more unofficial than official. It was organic and grassroots rather than authoritative. And in some ways, that's what lends the process its legitimacy. Many people in many different places recognise the same documents to be the truthful and authoritative account of the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. Along the way, of course, people did publish lists that showed what they took to be authoritative works. So at the end of the second century, we have something called the Muratorian Canon, which is a list of books that one person considered to be in the New Testament. And later church councils in certain regions did make declarations about what they considered to be reliable and authoritative works. But what they were doing was recognising what was already the case rather than establishing something new. Almost all the books we have in the New Testament were widely accepted. The four Gospels, Acts, the 13 epistles of Paul, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 John and Revelation. The only books that were mainly disputed were 2 Peter, Jude, James, and 2 and 3 John, and to a lesser extent Hebrews as well. But in the end, all those were accepted as well. But on what basis were any of those books adopted? There are a number of criteria that it can be seen were used and are still used to evaluate the books under consideration. The first was apostolic authority. By authority, we really mean that it was either written by the apostles or by somebody else closely connected with the apostles and Jesus. So Matthew and John were written by apostles. Paul's letters and Peter's letters were written by them and they were apostles. So too, the apostle John wrote Revelation and the letters of John. Mark, on the other hand, was not written by an apostle, but by someone acquainted with Peter. James and Jude were written by brothers of Jesus, and James was also an early church leader. The only real exception is Hebrews, which doesn't name its author, but the author is clearly connected with the apostles. In chapter 2, verse 3 of Hebrews, the writer says that the gospel message was confirmed to them and presumably to the writer himself by the apostles and witnesses of Jesus' life. And the writer and the recipients are clearly connected with Timothy, Paul's close co-worker. Moreover, as we saw in the last episode, Christians quickly rejected the authority of any work that was suspected of being written under a false name or suspected of not being legitimate. Connected with the idea of apostolic authority is what the scholar F.F. Bruce calls antiquity and orthodoxy. Antiquity refers to the fact that the document must belong to the period of time in which the apostles lived. It seems an obvious point, but in order for the apostles or their co-workers to have written those documents, the documents must have an origin during their lifetime. Orthodoxy refers to the fact that the contents of the document fits with the teachings of the apostles. Maybe a more helpful or broader term than orthodoxy is unity or coherence. That is, any book should fit within the structure of thought of the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. If a book doesn't fit with that, 
it shows that it doesn't really belong. If it does fit, then that together with the other criteria shows that it does belong. Another criteria was Catholicity, Catholic in the sense of universal. That refers to how widely a book was received by the church. If only a small region acknowledged the authenticity of a book, then it wasn't included. But if many Christians in many places acknowledged it, its authenticity was more likely to be accepted. A further criteria was traditional use. If Catholicity refers primarily to how broadly in geographical terms a book was accepted, traditional use refers to how a book was accepted in history. That is, if the use of a book could be traced back in the history to the earliest times of the church's practice, then it was more likely to be authentic. For instance, F.F. Bruce points out that if somebody suddenly turned up in the third century and said, look, I found another book of the New Testament, it would be very unlikely to gain wide acceptance because people wouldn't have heard of it. So too, if there was a book that was well known and that had been floating around for many centuries, but people had never considered to be part of the New Testament, the same would be true. It would be hard for it to suddenly gain acceptance. The final criteria is what F.F. Bruce calls inspiration, though Michael Kruger's term divine qualities is probably more helpful. Kruger points out that if God is genuinely the one who stands behind these books, then we should expect that these books would share God's own qualities. For Kruger, those qualities are things like beauty and excellency and power and efficacy. So Psalm 19 says, for example, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. But Kruger also includes unity and harmony, which is similar to the orthodoxy or coherence that we mentioned before. That is both an internal coherence, so the document should be consistent with itself rather than self-contradictory, but more importantly, it should be consistent with the rest of Scripture. And that, to my mind, is what makes the books of the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, so extraordinary. Take, for instance, the book of Hebrews. I've been studying Hebrews pretty seriously for over 10 years now, and what has struck me the more that I've studied it is just how well it ties into the rest of the Bible. The books of the Bible are like a fine tapestry. There are threads running everywhere, connecting one bit with another. So you can't unpick one piece and take it out because it's joined to all the other pieces. Like with the Old Testament, part of our confidence about the books of the New Testament being what they are is their agreement with one another. And not just the agreement of the New Testament books with each other, the Gospels with each of the other Gospels, the Gospels with Paul's writings and so on, but the unity of the New Testament books with the Old Testament books as well. They are 66 books written by different people in different languages, in different cultures, in different places, and in different times, but they all speak with one voice, and that is really quite extraordinary. But at the end of the day, it was all those criteria together that helped Christians determine what books were reliable and the authoritative word of God. So although Hebrews is not directly linked with an apostle, it is linked with Paul's ministry team. It does date from the time of the apostles. It was widely accepted in various places and it had a strong tradition of acceptance within the church reaching back to the earliest times. 
and it is in harmony with the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament. So even though there were doubts about some of the letters, like 2 Peter, James, Jude, 2 and 3 John, and Hebrews, it was because early on not everyone was sure that they met those criteria. But over time they were accepted because Christians came to accept that they did meet those criteria. They weren't accepted in spite of the doubts, but they were accepted because the doubts were seen to disappear. But finally, what about other books? Were there other books that should have made it in? That was one of the key claims made famous by Dan Brown's novel The Da Vinci Code. Dan Brown pointed to the so-called Gospel of Judas. Were there books like the Gospel of Judas that should have made it into the New Testament? The answer to that is really a pretty comfortable no. There are certainly many other books that we have from the period after the New Testament was written, but they're all from at least the second century onwards. Like with the Old Testament, there are other books that scholars call the New Testament Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, but even the earliest of those are almost universally dated to the late 2nd century and even much later. Among those are the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Edgerton Papyrus No. 2, the Gospel of Peter, and so on. But none of those was ever under serious consideration for inclusion in the Christian New Testament. That's because their provenance didn't stretch back to the first century. Therefore, even though some of them were named after apostles, they clearly weren't written by apostles. Of course, that means there's also no tradition of their use stretching back to the earliest times of the church. They didn't find acceptance in a geographically wide area. Not to mention that many of them have a very different character to the rest of the Bible. For instance, in the Gospel of Peter, Jesus comes from the tomb as a giant whose head reaches to the clouds and following him is a talking cross. That's very different, not only from other New Testament documents, but also from the Old Testament. So like with the Old Testament, there are good reasons from both inside and outside the Bible to believe that the New Testament we have is the right New Testament containing the very words of God. If you want to know more, I've posted a link in the description to a series of blog posts from Michael Kruger that you might find helpful. He's a specialist on the formation of the New Testament. But that's all for this episode of Thinking Theology. In the next two episodes, we'll be thinking about the reliability of the Old and New Testament, both in terms of the reliability of the written manuscripts, and then also in terms of their historical reliability. That is, how do we know that the words we have in the Bible are the words that were written, and how do we know that they record real historical events? Please join me then. Thank you.